One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, Bruce, and welcome back to the Squiggly Careers podcast. I feel really bad because you said that no one comes back. You're not allowed to come back. back. Bruce is back. (laughs) Only Bruce. Bruce is our book best friend, and we are very excited to talk about book number two, Fortitude, today. Thank you very much. So let's talk about the word fortitude for a moment, because this is a book all about resilience, what it is, what it isn't, and what we might need to develop instead. And you've chosen deliberately to call it fortitude. So what's the distinction between resilience and fortitude and why is it an important distinction to make? Well, you know, for me, they're broadly synonymous in the sense that, you know, I'm not trying to... I'm trying to say that resilience is our capacity to re-energise, to bounce back, to sort of deal with unpredictability and uncertainty. But the resilience word itself has become very tired for a lot of people, I think. You know, I, I started writing this book pretty much as COVID started, the first round of COVID started. I remember chatting to a few people when you were allowed to go back and, and meet people in person. I said, I'm writing a book on resilience. And there was a weariness with a lot of people. They'd go, oh, God, resilience. In fact, I've got a friend who works at the Whittington Hospital. And she said, she, latterly, but she said, if you mention resilience to people who work in the NHS, they will thump you. So <laughs> there was just a recognition that it's sort of become productized and it's sort of become this word that because of that has had every bit of meaning or every bit of magic that it had, it's been sucked out of it. So that was it for me. It was like, okay, so let's, firstly, let's recognize that resilience does exist or fortitude or whatever you want to call it. It does exist. And we can see that because we see it manifested in look, the people in Ukraine. Yeah. Who could doubt that these people who were office workers on a Friday and they're taking up arms on a Monday, who could doubt that they've been filled with some just inspirational level of bravery that all of us consider to be almost inconceivable? We can't imagine that we would somehow do that. So they seem to be imbued with something that is admirable and, and beautiful. But using the resilience word for it, I felt was tired and weary so that was it really a sort of a point of recognition that this clearly does exist but the way we're talking about it has been unfortunately I think deliberately misappropriated by people and so it was about pressing reset on that. I sometimes think that you you kind of find the books that you need to read you know like when you've got insights and it kind of really speaks to you and the early bit of the book you talk a lot about 
the relationship between adversity, particularly like adversity earlier on in life, and its relationship with resilience and success in later life. And I was reading this through and reading about some things called ACE scores and all kinds of things. And I, I sort of, you know, reflecting on my own life and thinking, oh, gosh, there are definitely moments of adversity in my younger life and thinking, is what I do now and how much energy and commitment and relentlessness towards what I do now, (laughs) how much of that is related to early life adversity. Could you share some of the insights about the relationship between the adversity you might experience earlier on in life and and its relationship between sort of resilience and fortitude later in life? Yeah, there were a couple of igniting factors, the reason why I did the book. Firstly, the resilience word I was hearing all the time when I was in Beirut. So I was researching stuff. I was in Beirut, my partner's Lebanese, and there was a big explosion in 2020. And all of the news coverage referred to resilience. So that was one of the things. The second part is I'd read this work that I couldn't get out of my head. And it was about the study that's very relevant. We're recording this just in the week that Mo Farah has come out and said, actually, I'm not the person you think me to be. I'm actually, rather than someone who's sent here by my family and have formed a new life here, I was, my dad died, my mum effectively sold me into modern slavery, and I came here as a domestic servant. And from the age of sort of preteen years, I was a domestic servant. So we might look at Mo Farah's story and go, gosh, well, at least he's been gifted with this good fortune that's lifted out of him out of this traumatic start in life. But no, they're not an accidental coincidence. What you discover is that UK Sport did this remarkable piece of work, and this is what I couldn't get out of my head, that studied 16 British super elite athletes. And they say all of them household names. All of them, of the ones they studied, all of them had a significant moment of childhood trauma. To just emphasise that that's not universal, the ones that they compared them to, who were the silver medalists, the, the bronze medalists, the people who did well but not quite win gold, only one in four of them had a moment of significant trauma. So there seems to be like this remarkable thing where trauma, firstly, it seems to be like this interesting common factor of people who achieve elite things. Then you go on and you look, and there was some, I I found myself sort of studying this, and there was some wonderful work done by a couple of GPs, effectively, a guy called Vincent Felitti and a guy called Robert Ander, both doctors in the US. Robert Ander was studying former retired combat soldiers. He was really interested that no matter how ill they were, they seemed to self-medicate, they seemed to smoke, they seemed to drink, you know. And it was almost like, wow, the the experiences they've had seem to be somehow directing them into these adaptive behaviours where they're smoking and drinking almost to self-medicate out of it. Simultaneously, Vincent Felitti said something which is just astonishing. He was dealing in a weight loss clinic and he had patients who were £300, £400, you know, really people really struggling with obesity. And he found himself accidentally asking a question of one of them, which was related to her sexual history. And effectively, he discovered, firstly, that this patient had been abused by her grandfather. But then he started asking other patients. He found 55% of his patients had experienced sexual abuse as children. The two of these guys didn't know each other, but they encountered each other at a a sort of a a learning lunch, effectively. And they realised the adjacency of the work. And they created this list, which is called the Adverse Childhood Experiences List. So it's a list of 10 things. Some of them look remarkably gentle, which might be like, were you subject to emotional abuse? Were you subject to physical abuse? Was there parental divorce? Was there someone at home who went to jail? Did you live with addiction? There's some of the things there. Some of the things that you might go is parental divorce that 
big an issue, but actually it very strongly correlates with adult obesity. But what you discover is through each of these 10 questions, you give a yes or no answer and you give or one or zero answer and you add up your score at the end of it. So it enables you firstly to have a, a discussion with a doctor because you can say my A score is four and it enables you to have a discussion. But what you discover is that once you know this A score, once you catalogue someone's experience of adversity, of trauma really, it's got a remarkable correlation with life outcomes. If you've got an A score of six, your life is on average 20 years shorter than if you've got an A score of zero. If you've got an A score of four, you've got 33 times higher likelihood of having educational issues. You know, if you've got an A score of, of four, your likelihood of getting lung cancer is double. Your likelihood of getting heart disease is double. And so you look at these things, and you go, wow. So firstly, we've got an incredible aggregation of data going on here. Mo Farah and let's say Linford Christie, Kelly Holmes, Andy Murray, all of these people who've experienced significant trauma and have gone on to be elite athletes. There seems to be something that propels people who've got an incredible gift into what they can accomplish. But... The actual experience of a trauma and adversity is actually an incredibly harmful one. And through those two things, I think you can learn, you can see a path to understanding where our response to adversity comes from. You know, for me, all of that is about identity because all of that, if you hear Kelly Holmes, Kelly Holmes will say sport became my identity. She was adopted. She was uh, she had parental abandonment. She was very severely bullied at school. I think latterly, you know, we've clearly learned that she's been wrestling with issues with her own sexual identity and, and feeling ashamed about that. And so you look at all of those things and you go, well, actually her then channeling all of her interest into a sporting excellence. Now you recognise the redemptive power of, of that power of identity, I think. So can you have resilience without adversity? Yes, I think you can. There's a psychologist who studied this who says that there's something of a Goldilocks zone, that if you have no adversity whatsoever, it seems to lead to slightly lower outcomes and slightly less favourable happiness with your life. But there's a Goldilocks zone where a certain amount of adversity is helpful. I should also say, though, that a guy who runs the Centre for the Developing Child in the US, a guy called Jack Chunkoff, he says... Our identity isn't predetermined to be the outcome of our lives. So these people work with people who've, who've experienced significant moments of childhood trauma. And actually, the most important step is understanding it. Once you understand it, then you can start addressing it. So you can give people the understanding that their experience isn't who they are. And so actually the most important part of this work is understanding it because, you know, my A score, for example, it's so fascinating for me. My A score is four. And so I immediately start going, gosh, right. OK, well, firstly, that would have a deleterious effect on my health. And secondly, would explain my relentless need to try and succeed and do more. I'm and... a five, Bruce. Oh, yeah. Yes. Right. <laughs> I can believe it. Because I reckon that my sister, you know, once we, we, my sister's read it and, and, you know, she studied a lot of psychology and she's gone, oh, yeah, everything about your behaviour is entirely consistent with your fingerprint of experience. And so it's, it's interesting as somebody who is a zero. So, you know, Helen and I, I think, read Fortitude through a very different lens and had a very different response and reaction to it. And I think partly because of that. You know, it was like we connected with different parts of the book, which also shows I think it's useful for everyone sort of in different ways. Because one of the things, one of the assumptions I was making as I read the early part of the book is, oh, OK, so some of these people who've got high ACE scores, 
crikey, they're going to have a lot of grit. You know, they will have really grown their grit through no choice of their own because of their very difficult life circumstances. Oh, maybe that meant they got loads of grit and a real kind of growth mindset and had to learn to be positive. And maybe that's helped them to be successful. However, you really challenge some what I think could even be described as conventional wisdom now that lots of people refer to and sort of understand around growth mindset and positive psychology. And, you know, you don't just uh, say, oh, you know, you're not sure. You you, know, you quite proactively challenge some of those concepts. So I wonder if you could just talk a bit about that sort of research. So almost your understanding there of resilience and fortitude you've just described to us. And how does that marry up or not with growth mindset and grit in particular? Because loads of our listeners will be really familiar with both of those ideas. And we talk about those ideas a lot. So I'm really interested to get into that debate a bit about the relationship between the two. For me, it's a little bit like skin creams in the sense that... <laughs> I wasn't expecting that response, okay. for sure. But for me, <laughs> there's a need for skin creams in the sense that people see themselves ageing before their very eyes in the mirror. Okay. And so they go, I need something that resolves this. But all of the evidence you look for skin creams is that they don't prevent ageing. Don't you say know. that, Bruce. I spend okay. a lot of money on skin okay. cream. <laughs> and, and, and they might make us, our skin feel better and look better. And But there is nothing whatsoever that reverses the impact of ageing. In a very similar way, marketing has, an industry has responded to a need and tried to synthesize a product that answers the need. And you can see it very clearly. Martin Seligman, who's probably the most eminent psychologist in the world, he's the Robert De Niro of psychology <laughs> in the sense that he did some really good work at the start of his career and he's done some not so good work at the end of his career. And he reports in his own book how he'd written some very lovely popular psychology books and the US Army and pretty much education authorities came to him and said, if we gave you money, will you solve our issue? And in the US Army, the issue was PTSD is off the scale. You know, you're significantly more likely to die from suicide if you're a combat soldier during the course of your life than you are to be killed by an enemy combatant. And so as a result of that, you know, there was a need for it. The skincare regime was, there was a demand for it. And so people created a product. And the interesting thing, what catalyzed that exploration for me is that so many people I know who've done resilience courses have said to me, it didn't work. I don't feel any different. She's like, okay, that's really interesting because like a skincare product, it's a charming, lovely idea. We build a routine around it. We've created something that seems in service of, of self-care. But if it doesn't work, there are fair questions to ask about that. And so, you know, I think I would say I broadly categorise Martin Seligman, grit and growth mindset as the resilience orthodoxy. I think it's probably slightly unfair to growth mindset because I think there is vaguely some substance to growth mindset, but it's not remotely the substance that is peddled, offered and promoted. You know, it's worth saying that people have really struggled with any degree of clinical desire to replicate the effects of growth mindset. In fact, pretty much the first model of growth mindset has been peddled. I don't think there's been any replications of it. However, latterly, they have adapted it slightly because one of the comments was someone said, the only thing in common with all of the proofs of growth mindset is one single thing, is that Carol Dweck was associated with them. And all of the things that have not demonstrated growth mindset have got one thing in common, Carol Dweck wasn't working on them. And so, you know, whether that is true or not, I think there is latterly, an edu I chat to a, a few educationalists who sort of say there is some evidence that some, it's, it's a bit like teaching a style of revision. There's some benefits to it, but I pull back from, firstly, I pull back from the belief in it. And secondly, 
actually, if you want to find proof and evidence, there is a parallel body of work that is so emphatically evidenced, which is the power of feeling connected to other people. And there's so much evidence that's consistently replicated, that is proven everywhere, that feeling part of a group and feeling connected to other people is transformational for experience in life. So I think, you know, that for me, it comes from the fact that I think the US, my partner's American, I'm not, I'm not criticising the US, the US is very fixated on individualistic cures. What can I prescribe for this person that will solve their problem? And the solution broadly, resilience is a collectivist solution. It's about feeling connected to other people. And sometimes that's an inconvenient answer for people to hear. So foundations of fortitude then. In the book, you talk about the importance of control, identity and community as being the three things that I think you would say count the most towards fortitude. Could we explore each of them in turn, starting with control, which again, when I was reading that, I consider one of my primary values to be freedom. And I was like, well, is it freedom, Helen? Or is it actually a need for control based on what you talk about in the chapter about it? Can you talk to us a little bit more about why control is so important in the context of fortitude? Let's imagine a scenario where someone listening to this is maybe not feeling resilient. And one of the things that probably will inform that is that they open their calendar either on a Monday morning and it's back-to-back -back meetings, or maybe they open it on Sunday night and it's back-to-back -back meetings. And they know that they're going to have a lot of incoming requests from customers and they're going to have a lot of emails. And they sort of breathlessly, anxiously, claustrophobically say, when am I going to get my work done? And then mid-afternoon, an email comes along from someone that requires a big amount of work. And immediately, the spiral of not feeling resilient starts because how can any of us cope with the situation when... We aren't in command if we don't have the autonomy to do things. And it's pretty much the biggest predictor of well-being, bar none, is a sense of control. And we can create the illusion from it as well. These examples where animals are given a degree of control and it improves their sense of experience. Or, you know, our own stress levels can be reduced if we chew gum. You know, like, actually, there's really good examples of how we mitigate against these things. But pretty much... A lack of control has a huge impact on our well-being. The worst thing about it is it's got a domino effect. So if you've got a parent who has a job with no control, they generally become controlling of their children. I was scared by that yeah. when I read that, that they go home and they kind of take that need into their home and into their family. The one thing that's very common amongst school bullies is that they've got authoritarian parents, specifically fathers. But, you know, so school bullies, so now, oh gosh, that kid who behaved in that abominable way, actually, you know, the, the, you see not only the crime, you see the causes of crime. It's like, wow, these things are passed forward. So if we find ourselves with no control, it has this, I think, dominating holistic experience over us. It, it really makes us feel like we can't cope with situations. So if you're going to make one thing change... Then you might say, if I'm feeling no autonomy at work, is there something that I could do to reduce the amount of time I'm spending in meetings? Is there something I could do to set some time aside to do something separate? You know, we all feel, and the illusion of modern work is we all feel like, well, we've got infinite time and we'll just, I'll answer this, then I'll answer this. And if I just need to work later, I'll work later. And we never make decisions of scarcity. But I guess one of the critical things you'd say is if people are feeling an absence of control, if people are feeling no resilience, then thinking about how you can gift them some space. 
And there's an allusion to it as well. If you look at nurses, so nurses were tracked, a really interesting study. Nurses were tracked and working long shifts and, you know, night shifts, day shifts. And what they discovered was the more that the nurse felt they'd chosen to work extra hours, the more able they were able to assimilate it. So you might hear this from people who run their own businesses. You hear, you know, burnout doesn't really apply to me. I can work as long as I want. There does seem to be something that, at least in the short term, is protective of us. If we feel like we've chosen to do this longer shift or we've done extra overtime because it's paying for a holiday, then it seems like our mind protects us a bit. So, you know, it, it allows us to feel... We are in control. We've chosen to do it. So, you know, it helps me understand when people have said to me, burnout doesn't apply to me. I can work as long as I want. It sounds like, at least in the short term, that helps explain it. When we feel like we've got the autonomy to make that decision, it seems to help. It really makes me think about how important it is to check in with the people that work within your teams in terms of what, how much control do you feel like you have of your week at the moment? What gets in the way of that control? How can I help to increase your control? You know, do you feel like you can make choices about what you work on and how you work? I was doing some walk and talks with our team this week and I, I always ask everyone like, what are you enjoying the most at the moment? What gives you the most energy? And it was interesting that the first thing everyone in our team talked about was how they work rather than what they work on. So this sense of oh, I feel like I have choice and control over how I work. And if that means I want to volunteer for my kids swimming, I just make that happen. And how much they appreciated almost not feeling like they had to sort of tell us or hopefully not having that micromanagement. And I think sometimes, yeah, we have the freedom, hopefully, to be able to do that because we're a small company. But I do think, you know, there are levels of that. And even in really big companies, you have that ability as a manager to make a real difference in that area of choice and control. Well, the perfect example that to add to precisely mm. what you're saying is there was an article in Harvard Business Review a couple of months ago, and I know you get a couple of free articles a month so they could go and read your latest piece and then read this <laughs> oh, one. Bruce. Thanks, Bruce. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but there's an article about meeting-free days. And it's mm. worth reading because companies introduced meeting-free days and, and 70 organisations did it. They had to have at least a 1,000 employees. So these weren't sort of small cottage industries. And what they discovered by introducing meeting-free days was, and this was specifically, no standing meetings. So you and I could meet for a coffee, I could have lunch with Helen, or we could grab sort of a quick chat together. But people described their engagement with their job went up about 27%. Their level of exhaustion went down because people felt like, oh, I'm making the decisions myself. And just that simple exercise of giving people just a bit of flexibility to feel like they're in control helped mitigate and, and push back against that. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. 
like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. So just thinking a little bit about identity, and we've mentioned it already, but one of the things that we've talked about before on the podcast is this idea of enmeshment, which is essentially when your identity isn't distinct from your job. So the work you do becomes who you are. And there's some real dangers to that because with our blurred boundaries and when we are all probably working longer than before, there's certainly no evidence that people are working shorter that I've seen, this feels like it continues to be a risk. And you mention a researcher called Ericsson who talks about how important our sense of identity is in terms of providing us with our ability to see ourselves in sort of the same way with continuity, but something as separate to, you know, the work that we do or maybe the family that we're part of. We sort of have this own sense of self. And I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about how that helps us to be resilient and to have that fortitude. And I think probably the killer question, and it might be an impossible one, is if you don't feel like you've got that, what do we do about it? So if someone is listening and feeling like, oh, I don't, maybe, maybe I don't, maybe I just feel like I'm sort of part, I'm here for my family and I'm here for my work. You know, when you feel like you're split in loads of different directions, mm. I think I hear that from lots of people that they don't really feel like they have any time for them. And I think this goes way beyond self-care, like the sense, sense of self. So interested in your reflections about what you found out, but also if someone isn't feeling that connection to sense of self, like, what might you do? Where might you go? Yeah, and I think we can see how identity is definitely, it's a conflicted part of this because for some of the people concerned, channeling everything into accomplishment for identity can prove enriching mm -hmm. but also incredibly endangering. So, you know, from quotations that we see, Simone Biles, the American gymnast, during the course of the Olympics, she had missteps she was like probably expected to win at least four gold medals she ended up winning i think one one silver medal and maybe a bronze as well she said during the course of what was effectively a quite a public breakdown she said she was very grateful for the praise she received by coming clean on mental health issues because until now she'd seen herself merely in the fact that she was an accomplished athlete mm. naomi osaka tennis player has said she's asked herself well what am i if i'm not a tennis player and you know, th through that, you can really see the dangers of enmeshment because we see see ourselves thinking, I'm a provider for my family or I'm someone who's going to work hard and make my mum proud of <laughs> the, you know, of what I accomplish at work. Or, you know, I'm going to be able to get the money for a deposit on a flat because I'm striving so hard. We see all of these things as a way to paint like this redemptive image of ourselves. And the danger of that is that when that fails, it's potentially in the, in the case of those athletes vividly shows is potentially a risk. So I think, you know, identity can be incredibly propelling for us. It can be incredibly motivating, but it's also that enmeshment, I think is a genuine mm. risk, a, ge mm. a genuine exposure. So, you know, I, I think it demonstrates how challenging this is, but there's no doubt whatsoever that the thing that, you know, these victims of trauma have all got is that they've, they've been able to focus their energy into that and have accomplished at elite level as a result of it, really. 
Yeah, it's quite a conflicting it really is. area, isn't it? Because like you say, it's not that they've, they've been very successful, certainly if you look at them through one lens, but then you do question whether did that success equals meaning or happiness. And I even recognise it, even at a very, you know, we're not Olympic gymnasts, but, you know, a, big, a really, really big part of my identity is the work that I do. And that has been the case for a very, very long time. So even as you were talking there, I was imagining... And I think sometimes this can actually be quite useful to do is like, what would happen if amazing if closed tomorrow? And you do, you like crikey, that's such a big part of my identity and who I am. And, you know, I now work with my best friend and all of those kind of things like what would happen to our friendship? What would happen to how other people see me? And, you know, you've got quite a public profile that people see. And that's where I think it's worth reminding yourself of even in that worst case scenario. Oh, but you've still got, you know, I still love to play netball. I've still got a son and a family that I love very much. And you know, almost like that, mm. I think sometimes that worst case scenario planning alongside that zooming out to just remind yourself as well not to forget about those other things. I've had the odd moment in my career where I was so focused on work that if that had gone wrong, and fortunately it didn't, I don't think I would have been left with very much. Whereas actually I, I think, and I remember talking to Martha Lane Fox about this, she talked to me when we interviewed her about resilience and I said to her, what's helped you be the most resilient? And she's sold companies. She had to relearn to walk after a very bad car accident. She said it was never forgetting my world outside of work. That was her like single thing. She like loved going to the theatre. She's got twins and she's, you know, she's done, but she was like, just always, it's not about work-life balance. It's sort of something more than that. It was just that sense of, I am, I am a number of different people all at the same time. Just be careful you don't become one part of that picture. I just find it a really useful mm. reminder. I was probably one of the most gobsmacking interviews I did for the book was chatting to a professor, sort of an assistant professor, who was studying the use of performance-enhancing drugs by athletes. And so that's an interesting thing. Mm. That's an illustration of an area where focus on identity might meander yeah, yeah, into yeah. something that we consider morally unjustifiable. And what he said is that he gave me some stats that were astonishing. Like anyone who'd been, I think, physically abused was nine times more likely as a professional athlete to take performance-enhancing drugs. And anyone who'd been sexually abused was about eight times more likely. And these are multiplicative. Mm -hmm, yeah, yeah. So, you know, if someone has been physically and sexually abused, they're massively more likely to take performance-enhancing drugs. And what you get then, in, you get into stories of, okay, right, so here's an interesting profile. That all of these people who won gold medals, and, you know, I'm not pointing this specifically at British athletes, but people who won gold medals were trying to resurrect a shattered sense of self. Mm -hmm. And we also know that people who've had a shattered sense of self might consider that they will restore their sense of self-belief at all costs. And so then if we're trying to empathise with an athlete who maybe has taken performance-enhancing drugs, we have to start from a position of thinking... This was a broken person who did something mm. as an act of self-healing rather than a nasty person who set out... Cheating. Thing, cheat. I'm going to cheat. Mm. This was someone who felt reduced, humiliated. You know, the word you hear throughout the people who have suffered trauma is shattered, shattered sense of identity. These are people who feel like they're... They've only accomplished any degree of self-worth through what they've been able to accomplish on the sports track. And so, you know, not remotely thinking about any of the people we've talked about before, but you can definitely see the, an example is Marion Jones, who was probably one of the most accomplished American sports people, won 
100 meters, 200 meters, I think, a long jump as well. And she was caught taking drugs. And, you know, she'd suffered parental abandonment. She'd suffered her mum's new partner died. She suffered all series of traumas. And, you know, I think people who've looked at it have said, actually, this huge hole was excavated inside of her, this void, this sense that she felt, you know, the way that kids interpret things, they think, oh, this happened because of me. You know, if it wasn't for me, this wouldn't have happened. And so people seek to fill that void that trauma's created by the actions they take. And I think through all of that, we can see, to your point, that, you know, that identity can be this really powerful motivating factor, but it also can be this incredibly, this tinderbox that mm. can really be an explosive combination inside of us. So on those three foundations of fortitude, we've covered control, we've talked about identity, and the third one is community. And I think this is the biggest aha moment for me in the book, because to your point about resilience and individualism and all that kind of stuff, you know, you know, go focus on this alone and put your mindset right and you'll be fine with resilience. Actually, a lot of what you cover in the book is the importance of the relationships you have around you, the role of community in that. And I guess there's sort of two parts to my question. As I was reading it and thinking it, I was like, oh, Oh, I'd love Bruce to just tell us a little bit more about that so that other people can learn about it because I think it is so fundamental to fortitude and it's sort of new knowledge for me. And the second thing that was in my mind whilst I was reading it was like the idea of sort of we in the workplace now, like what if community is so important and the way that work is going, how do we keep community with the way that we're working now? So I think they're probably two quite big yeah. questions, but community and fortitude, let's explore that so other people can learn about it. And then the way that work works now, what do we need to change so that we have the community that we need? Yeah, there's a wonderful guy who passed away a couple of years ago called Enrico Quarantelli. And Enrico Quarantelli was obsessed with natural disasters and when things went wrong. It's almost like, you know, if you've got an earthquake or people flying out of somewhere, he was the lone car driving in the other direction. <laughs> he was like, he was obsessed with going to see when things went wrong. He spotted this, this weird trend that... Our expectation might be, because we've seen disaster movies, that something goes wrong, a building's on fire, something, you know, an earthquake happens, that what we're going to see is loads of people screaming and running with their arms, wailing, waving in the air. And he said it's the exact opposite. What you find, whether it's 9-11, whether it's the aftermath of, you know, a terrorist attack in London, whether it's a natural disaster, whether it's floods somewhere, what you find is people immediately their individual identities are actually swept away. You know, I'm no longer... The Blitz spirit is a good illustration of it. I'm no longer this Financial Times reading, bowler hat wearing businessman. I'm now adjacent to this person who's next to me on the street. We've got this new shared identity, which is we're bomb blast survivors or we, you know, remarkable things in the testimony of survivors of 9-11. And one woman says really vividly, everyone who was on the streets of 9-11 had a calm to them, had a community, a, a, a sort of sorority, a, a brotherhood that where they were like buying things for each other, they were doing things for each other. Everyone who watched it on TV, they just saw the trauma and the repeated trauma of this shocking event. And they were hysterical. And it was like a really interesting juxtaposition because throughout, another good example, there's a, there's a woman who became very famous in 9-11 as the, the dust lady. And it's a, a, a very vivid story with a tragic ending where this woman who was like in her around 30 and she was photographed, consumed, covered in dust like a statue. And she went on to pass away, largely because of the, she had no health insurance but, and she'd consumed a lot of, I think, carcinogenic materials during that. But 
if you compare her experience to police officers and firefighters who served that day, when police officers were surveyed a few years later, the vast majority of them were regarded to have fully recovered from the experience. Firefighters, the same, fully recovered. Now, they might have had illness related to what they consumed that day, but mentally they were hashtag resilient. You know, they, they sort of got through it. Whereas Marcy Borders, because she experienced her trauma of that alone, she lost her job, she sat at home, she said she sat at home drinking and taking drugs. Her isolation, in the same way that that community protected those serving members of the forces. Her isolation was what separated her. And this isn't just one-off. This is repeated. We see really consistent examples of, firstly, people draw strength from a crowd. They draw strength from feeling connected to strangers around them. And secondly, when we do see our own identities reflected in other people. So, you know, you and I have just been through this experience. We might talk about this building that collapsed around us more than anyone who knows us would ever want to listen to. We find we talk about, talk about, talk about, talk about. Processing that is an important part of us coming to terms with it. And everyone else, because they won't understand it, we sort of tend to hide that. And what you find throughout stories of trauma, you find that people start hiding that aspect of the trauma. They conceal it. Trauma is generally about the lack of self-revealing. It's about feeling that you've got something that you don't want to expose to other people. And that connectedness of community is where we feel that we are understood by another person and they understand us. And it seems to be incredibly protective. Now, thinking specifically about the moment we're in with work, with this one common thing that runs across this sense of community, and it's a sense that we're all in it together. When we feel a sense that we're all in it together, it seems to be incredibly enriching. In fact, you know, you can witness examples in society. When it looks like during COVID, we're all in it together. The Queen's sitting on her own at her husband's funeral. When we're all in it together, it seems like, yeah, you know, this is a collective effort. When we start seeing people who don't look like they're in it together with us. That's when we get affronted, when we get annoyed, frustrated. That Why are they not doing it? Why is that family not doing it? Why We, we feel it breaks this sort of the, the bond, the affinity we've got. And I think the most critical thing for work right now is that a lot of us have thought, you know, the amount of organisations I've chatted to who say, oh, you know, we've got this policy of three days a week or two days a week. And then when you chat to the workers, they're like, well, we're not doing those days. <laughs> so many firms are really struggling to get people to come in the, the amount of days they want. And it's the wrong focus to some extent. The focus needs to be how do we make people feel like they're part of something? Now, that might be one day a month, two days a month, where there's something meaningful, where you're sharing ideas together, where people mm. feel like their voice is being heard, where you're talking about the plan for next quarter and everyone feels like my idea's up on the board. And, you know, those things are far more meaningful for us feeling like we're all in this together. And we sort of recognise this. You can feel part of your family or you can feel part of a friendship group. Or you might have friends from university where you've stayed together. And if you feel like the relationship's being respected, if you feel like, oh, actually, I feel like this relationship still exists and I'm participating in it, it doesn't necessarily matter how often you see people, but more the sense that, everyone's servicing the relationship and I think we've lost sight of that to some extent. It's actually really interesting listening to you saying that because I, I had in my mind, like, is there a bit of a tension between control and community in the workplace? So control might mean I get to work in a way that works for me, but if you are doing that and Sarah's doing that, then when are we coming together as a community? But actually 
your point is you can still work in a way that works for you. But what we need is community is not just like being in the same room together. It's having a reason to be in the same room together that's worth it and better because of it. And if we can find the reason why it's better to be together and we're all committed to that, then that's the reason for a community to form. But just bringing people back on a random day of the week, like I was listening to other podcasts, just to look in your screen so that you can all just be at the same place, but in a virtual meeting with some people that aren't in the same place, that doesn't really work. You need a reason to be a community that people want to be part of and then they can still have their control and you can still have meaningful community. But I I think it's just an interesting tension that I hadn't really Mm. thought about because I hadn't explored before the role of community in resilience quite so much. You know, I, I hosted a roundtable of people who sort of coming back to the office yesterday. And I'm always interested, what's your policy, what's your policy, what's mm. your policy? And <laughs> what you find is that a lot of organisations have got three days a week as a policy. And then you say to them, oh, and how many days on average are people averaging? Oh, some people are not coming in at all. Most people are averaging one day a week. So how many people are in on Monday? We had no one in this week on Monday. Okay. How many people came in on Friday? We had three people in on Friday. Okay. So we're starting to learn that like these intention paths of what people are actually doing. And I think it undermines a firm's credibility, firstly, when it's three days a week and no one's doing the three days a week. But it's also missing something because people say to me, oh, yeah, I made the journey in. I didn't see anyone from my team. You know, I had a bit of a chat with people. It's... It's missing the objective. Now, I love these, I don't know if I put it in the book, actually, the, the phrase Simha. Did, did I put no, it? I don't no. think so. Okay, by um, the former chief rabbi of the UK, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs. And he was talking about this word that when it's in the Bible, it's translated as joy. But it's, he says you miss a nuance with that. It's not joy, it's shared joy. And so Simha might be us getting together and singing or listening to music together or going to having dinner together and laughing. I'll do all of those things. Okay. <laughs> but normally when any of us think about the most meaningful moments that we've experienced or the most meaningful accomplishments in a job, they're generally not, I did this on my own. It's normally they've got a degree of simha to them. So it might be the celebration of something big you did or the recognition you got for something big you did rather than the mere act of accomplishing it. As soon as you recognise that, you go, oh, okay, I really recognise that. And firstly, it means, okay, being more intentional about creating a beautifully created dinner. You know, a good example for you that, you know, if you had university friends gathering, you wouldn't say, I tell you what we're doing, we're meeting at Tuesday ZZ's, we're going to have a pizza, and that's it. You'd say, okay, we're going away for an, a weekend, we've booked this restaurant, you know, dress up for the Saturday night. Why? Because it's like, it's being a bit more intentional about creating a moment that's got simha, that's got a, a memorability to it. And I think that's where we need to get to. Attribute one guy with some of the problems that we're having right now. So there's a guy, a brilliant professor called Professor Nick Bloom, And he has had the ear of a lot of firms. And he's for a long time been saying three days a week in the office. And it's why Google has Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. It's why Apple has Monday, Tuesday, Thursday. And it's proved incredibly unpopular. So now he's pulled back a bit and said, oh, maybe it's two days a week. And the problem is for a lot of people is they've already tried this three days a week and it was awful. They're either in back-to-back video calls or there's just no energy to it. And to some extent, it's... We're running the risk of making the office seem like this desolate, Mm. lifeless place where you're forced to go rather than an experiential thing, a a place where you get together very clearly because we're going to do this and 
there's going to be some good energy that comes from it. And I think, you know, that's one of the challenges of the moment we're in. So, Bruce, thank you. It's been a fascinating conversation today, as I knew it would be, and a challenging one, as we also knew it would be. (laughs) But we always finish these conversations with the same question, which we're really interested to know, what's the most useful piece of career advice that you would like to share with our listeners and leave our listeners with? This could be a useful piece of career advice that you've been given and that you sort of want to pass on and share what you know so we can all succeed, or perhaps just some words of wisdom from you. So the one thing I will say is that sometimes being memorable or distinctive is more valuable than you think. And, you know, specifically, you know, I got my job through doing a cartoon CV. We were just talking actually about two writers who use a different form to express their work, illustrations. And because of that, it just stands out in actually like a very cluttered, commoditized space. But the fact that they've got something different makes them really stand out far more than maybe they would in any other way. And my cartoon CV got me a job, no doubt. And so I always used to think, you know, if I was a kid now applying for a job, I would put my CV on a balloon and send it to someone's (laughs) office. I would, you know, I would send a Polaroid of me making a cup of tea saying like, you know, like I would seek to... Most people receive, receive at work now, they receive no physical mail. So you've got basically a whole lane of the motorway that if you want to communicate with someone, you've got a whole lane of the motorway that is completely uncrowded. If you create something that's beautiful, memorable, thoughtful, personal, that lands on that, you've got a way of communicating that no one is using whatsoever that, you know, they've got their phone is cluttered with 10 apps with 15 different notifications and that, you know, that the one day in the week they come into the office, that's probably like this weird day. If you've got something waiting for them there, it just stands out in this just remarkable way that if someone invented this today, you'd be going, I can't believe <laughs> these, this thing and it's not cluttered. So my view is always what can you do that it doesn't – my cartoon CV was really terrible. It was <laughs> so poor quality. I'm embarrassed to show kids if I do talks at school now because it's so of its time. But just a reminder for me that you don't necessarily have to be the best for it. Why that worked, that cartoon CV worked, is because it felt really personal. It felt it could only have come from this person. It, it was very human. It was like a degree self-deprecating. And it just made people smile. And actually, like, that thing where someone's smiling, they're emotionally pulling for you. And so doing something that stands out and makes people pull for you is incredibly potent, I think. That's that's what I would say, you know, whereas sometimes we can get co- so consumed with, OK, well, everyone's doing this and I've got to do this. And, you know, the first thing I always say to kids at school is that you're going to create a CV, what do you do? Well, you go to Google, obviously. And what you do, you search CV, obviously. And what you do, click on the first link, obviously. So that's what everyone did. Okay. Is it any surprise that your CV looks exactly the same as everyone else's CV? So then you're like, okay, what are the little steps along the way doing that that aren't that? You know, and that's why these people who do the illustrations in their book, or it's, they're often simple things. And the moment you see it go, oh, yeah, of course, that's obvious. You know, none of these things feel like they're someone's invented the iPhone. They're not like genius flashes of inspiration. So all I would think is, are there little things that you could do that probably are your strength or something that's a bit more you that might enable you to show you as a real person? 
So thank you, Bruce, both for your advice. And we are working on a squiggly CV so that everyone can have yeah. an individual an individual way to share what they've done and what they want to do in the future. But thank you so much for your advice there and for talking to us about Fortitude. We loved it. And I think, as Sarah said, I think we both took different things from it, but have both learned a lot because of it. So thank you. Where can everybody else go and get Fortitude? How can they pre-order it? Where should they go first? Yeah, I mean, look, you know, um, go to your local bookshop and order it. Go on. Or, um, <laughs> that's what I, I would say. But, you know, it's obviously available in all the places. I did the audiobook last week. Maybe caused myself a breakdown. Oh, no. <laughs> it's a long book. It's a long book. I, I was called back for repeat sessions uh, okay. um, in hot weather. Nice. They nice. couldn't turn the aircon on. But, uh, yeah. But, uh, yeah, you know, it's... Um, I've been really blown away with the response, you know. So I got lovely quotations from people. I was chatting to someone from Voice of America last week who said it was her favourite book of 2022. Oh. So I was, uh, I was like so blown away with someone who's sort of well, you know, rounded who said that. So like some lovely comments along the way. So. And I would just do a quick shout out for Bruce's newsletter, Make Work Better. That's right. It is on my must-read newsletter list, of which there are lots of newsletters, but it's probably the one that I always make time for, but it's also definitely the one that I recommend the most to other people. So if you don't subscribe to that and you're interested in just how we can make work better, how we can create really positive cultures and just all do work that we enjoy, I'd really encourage you to check it out because I find it very useful. And we will put the links to that and the links to Bruce's book to pre-order in the show notes, so make sure you check that out. Thanks, Bruce. Thank you so much. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.